Hebrews chapter 4. As we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. We're going to start there today and look ahead. On July 4th, 1986, uh, I went to a small group party at a lake. Um, it's kind of a water skiing lake, small group party, as you can imagine, on July 4th. Uh, I didn't go to the church, and I wasn't in the small group that was hosting the party. As a matter of fact, I'd never been to the church, but my brother went to that church, and he went to that small group. And for some time, he had been telling me that there was a girl in his small group that I should meet. Um, I would play golf with the associate pastor, a couple of guys on staff, and they kept telling me, there's a girl in Brian's small group you need to meet. So I went to this party to meet a girl and a water ski, uh, both, um, but mainly the girl. So uh, my brother said, oh, there she is over there. She was sitting in a chair, a lawn chair. She had big old honking sunglasses on and a bathing suit, and um, she, she looked good. So I went up to meet her. My brother said, come, inter- let me introduce you to her. I walk up. Uh, my brother says, hi, Kathy, this is Bart. Um, this is my brother. She basically says, hi. Uh, and, and probably not that warmly. Uh, I must have been very unimpressive without my shirt. Uh, it's hard to believe, but <clears throat> she, was, she was in no way moved. My brother, and I, my brother and I walked away, and in my usual warm and loving tone, I said, she is a real gem. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, on the way to the July 4th party, um, this beautiful young lady had totaled her car. Um, She had just made the final payment on the car. She was driving along. Someone ran a stop sign, totaled her car, which to me is amazing. She even went on to the the lake party in the first place. I came, come, came. I since found out whatever the right grammar is. Later found out she was indeed a warm, loving, and not just beautiful woman. But at that moment, she was unapproachable. Many of us in our lives, we think of God as unapproachable. He's there. He must love us. He's got the world still moving forward. He sent his son to die for us. But really, in our hearts, when we think of God and the majesty and the glory of God, we somewhere think, well, I can't really come to God. This passage in the book of Hebrews is going to show us that if God is anything as our Father, He is approachable. As a matter of fact, what He's done for us through Jesus Christ, He's done in order to have a relationship with us. The book of Hebrews, just to get a running start, It talks about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the final and complete, the most full revelation of who God is. There is not going to be another revelation of who God is. There's not going to be a fuller revelation of who God is. 
it is found completely in Jesus Christ. Because he is fully God and fully human, we have um, a brother, one who loves us, one who paved the way for us, one who is like us, but one who has the power to deliver us. Jesus is greater than anything in your life, any problem, any situation, any circumstance, anything, God is greater. The author of Hebrews then goes on, because of this, because Jesus is the final, complete, full revelation of God, because he's fully God, fully man, because of all that he's done, therefore, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to have the confidence to hold on to him. Don't fix our eyes on circumstances or situations or other stuff around us. Instead, fix our eyes on Jesus. Not only that, therefore, because he is who he is, since the promises of God still stand, we can enter his rest. We looked at this last week that that the author of Hebrews is building incrementally on who Jesus is and our response to him. Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus. Therefore, we can enter God's rest, which is not like just heaven, just that when we die, we get to rest. But now we have a a joyful, confident expectation that where we are in God, though things may be swirling around us, we can still rest in him. And then in verse chapter 4, verse 14 today, he says, therefore, third therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, led us. Because of who Jesus is, because of this rest, because we can fix our eyes on him, let us. And he's going to show us what we can do. Before we get to the part that says, let us, what we can do, he says, since we have a great high priest, This is a phrase unique to the book of Hebrews, really, naming Jesus a great high priest. And it's a a reflection of an analogy of an Old Testament picture, an Old Testament truth that the readers of Hebrews know well, but we really don't relate to all that well unless we've been in church for a long, long time and have studied the priesthood and the high priest and we understand. Remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who used to be Jewish but now are followers of Jesus Christ, and they're going through a time of persecution, they're going through a time of suffering, they're they're frustrated, as it were, they're downcast, they're having problems. So some of them are actually thinking about leaving the Christian faith and going back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is over and over and over again saying, what are you going to go back to? Everything that you think you're going back to is really just a shadow of the real. Jesus Christ is the reality. He cast the shadow from eternity past, and everything in the Old Testament is just a shadow of what was coming. Now you've got the reality of Jesus Christ. Why go back to the shadows? Because the real is greater than the shadow. Are you with me? Amen? See, the real, why would you worship a shadow when you can worship the real? Jesus is the great high priest. In Old Testament times, if you remember, God set up the priesthood, the priest to intervene between himself and the people. Really, it's it's the people 
looking to God. You know, there's a, if you, if, in a simplistic form, the priest represents the people before God. If you want to get simple about it, in real terms, the prophet represents God to the people. So you have priests and prophets. You have the priest representing people to God, the prophet representing God to the people. And in this case, he's saying Jesus is our great high priest. Remember, the priests would offer sacrifices for the people. They would go into the temple or the tabernacle, and because sin is a problem in all of our lives, there's a real sin issue. God hates sin. Therefore, a price has to be paid for sin. Paul's really referring this in the book of Romans when he says, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament times, who, who died? What died? An animal died. An animal died to take care of the sins of the people. So the priest would take an animal sacrifice into the temple and blood was shed. The sins were taken care of. And the priest would, the high priest, once a year, would go into the holiest place and he would offer sins, uh, a sacrifice not just for the people, but for himself and all the rest of the priests as well. Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one who represents us before God, taking care of our sin. It, it, the, the pictures just go on and on and on. And the high priest, in Old Testament times, there was a couple of weaknesses. One, the high priest was also a sinner himself. So though he was representing the people before God, he still was also representing himself because he was fallen. Also, the high priest was eventually going to die, so he's going to have to be replaced by another high priest. Jesus is the great high priest because though he's like us, he's fully man, he's also different than us, he's fully God. He didn't sin, therefore his representation for us us before God is without any mixture of error, and because he's eternal, he never has to be replaced. He is the great high priest. And one of the great truths of and, and unbelievable pictures is not only is he the great high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. The problem with the Old Testament sacrifice is that they really weren't taking care of the sins of the people. They were just ultimately delaying the punishment. They were a delay tactic until Jesus came. Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans, chapter 3, that when Jesus died as an atonement for our sins, that he took care of all the sins that had been delayed through all those animal sacrifices. He took them on himself. He paid the final price for all those sins and for the sins that were going on right then and for all the sins of all time of all people who would come to call him Lord. We, we have a great high priest. In chapter 5, in chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10, uh, I'm going to come back to 4, 4 in just a minute, but he tells them they have a great high priest, therefore we can do something. But then he comes back and says something about the priesthood. Look in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. 
That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. Do you see the picture of the high priest that was, the weakness of that high priest, but that is calling, he was selected by God. He offered the sacrifices for the people and for his own sins. Now he goes on to show us again why Jesus is the great high priest, verses 4 and following. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'll just put the Melchizedek thing aside. We're going to come back to that in a couple of chapters, uh, if I can ever navigate my own way through. Uh, who is Melchizedek? Then we'll have a great time in a couple of weeks when we come back to that. goes on and says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order, again, of Melchizedek. Jesus is like us, but different than us. He's like us because he's fully human and he can relate to us, but he's also different from us in that he's fully God. And God has made him, as a result of his sinlessness, our great high priest. He is the one who represents us before God. He is at the right hand of God the Father. He is God. He's the Son. He is our high priest. He's representing us before God because he's our brother, because he's led the way. All the things we've looked at in the weeks past of who Jesus is, now, here's what we can do. Therefore, let us. Because Jesus is our high priest, we have the confidence to draw near in faith. We have the confidence to draw near in faith. You see, Jesus has made a way so that God is not unapproachable. Our sin would make God unapproachable, but Christ, because he paid the penalty for our sin, because he represents us before God, we in faith now can come into God's presence. Back in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. We can hold firmly to the faith we profess because of who Jesus Christ is. Because he's our great high priest, we have faith. What what, what did I say? Do you remember last week for those who were here? What is faith? How did I define it? Anybody remember? It's belief plus yourself. It's not just some intellectual, mental assent. Oh, yeah, Jesus. He, he was a great man, good teacher. Some bad guys killed him. They say he rose again. Believing the stories about Jesus is not the same thing as having faith. Having faith is saying, I believe, professing our faith, verbally, 
giving confession to it, and then stepping out in faith to say, I get to boldly come into God's presence. By faith, because of what Christ has done, I have one at the right hand of God who is like me. Who is like me. He was tempted in every way. So he can sympathize with me. Now, wait a minute. I I know what some of you are thinking right off the bat. This is what my wife says to me. I know what you're thinking. Um, And it's like this. How can Jesus really, how can we really say he understands my temptation? How can we say he really, he didn't have the internet. He didn't have all the, he didn't have television. He didn't have, listen, temptation really hasn't changed. It may be a little more um, slick, but temptation is still temptation. And Jesus underwent temptation. Now, some of you may be thinking again, well, if he never succumbed to temptation, then how can we say he underwent temptation? Surely, uh, because he was God in the flesh, he had an advantage that I don't have. So how can he sympathize with me? It's like saying, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is really like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation really is. C.S. Lewis, in a great quote in Mere Christianity, Mark, this is just for you, buddy. Just my, my C.S. Lewis quote for the morning is right here. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. Again, World War II analogy, it's a little dated, but you understand. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. This is great. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. I I think you get the picture. The longer you resist temptation, the more you can say how hard resisting temptation is. The person who faces temptation and immediately gives in, they can't say how hard temptation is because they just give in to it. The real battle is as time goes on, and Jesus, because he never under, he never succumbed to it. I was talking to Jared and Adam, I'm going to make this reference a little later, but they went to Atlanta Friday night to meet Caleb. Those are my three sons. And they went to some concert together. So they were driving. Jared and Adam were driving home late Friday evening after the concert. And I was making fun of the, how, how Adam fell asleep like within three minutes of getting in the car. Didn't keep Jared up. Didn't keep him company. And Adam was like, oh, I tried to stay awake. I'm like, you didn't try very hard. 
It sounds like you just gave in to it. Ah, yeah, well, I, I did. I thought about trying hard. Listen, our faith is not a blind faith. It is faith in a real person who was tempted and suffered, but praise God, overcame. We need to profess or confess our faith in Christ. In doing so, we draw near to God. Think about this. By professing and confessing and following, we draw near to God. Let's reverse it. What are you confessing today? The implication here is if you're not confessing faith in Christ, you're not drawing nearer to God, you're doing what? You're actually moving away from God. How much do we confess our faith in our problems, our faith in our finances, our faith in our position, our faith in our family, our faith in something else. Listen, the only way to draw near to God is by faith in Jesus Christ. But because we have faith in Jesus Christ, we can draw near to God. Second point is the confidence to draw near in prayer. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This word confidence is not just this, I can do it. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of bold frankness. In other words, to really come before God and share with him what's really going on in our hearts and in our lives. Now, we don't picture God like that. We don't picture God where we can come into his presence and be frank and bold in prayer which we couldn't do on our own, by the way. But because of who Jesus is, because of his great high priesthood, because of everything we've looked at so far, we can come boldly into his presence. I love this passage. I know many of you do as well. What kind of throne do we get to approach? Is it a majestic throne? Is it a glorious throne? Is it an opulent throne? Is it a scary throne? Is it a... It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. John Calvin marveled at this. Now, John Calvin is not considered by many the, the, the preacher of grace. But he says in this, the basis of this confidence... The the reason we can have this bold frankness with God is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. Since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and a fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. People, really, if you can get in our hearts and our heads, that Jesus Christ, because of his high priesthood, has, has changed the whole dynamic of the throne room of heaven. And though it's a majest, God is majestic and God is glorious, he has put over his throne a, a banner of, that says the throne of grace. It will change us. What, what happens at this throne of grace? 
we can find mercy and grace to help us win in our time of need. Again, for some of us, our faith is so low and we think God is so high and we're so bad and he's so glorious that there is no way he's going to have mercy and grace upon me and I can really find any help in my time of need. There are people within the Christian faith who, who I would say hold to a, I hate to say a minimum standard, but it's more like I believe in Jesus. He is the son of God. I'm saved. And when I die, I get to go to heaven, but that's just about it. This life, I just got to hang on till Jesus either comes back or or I die. He really doesn't care. I'm so bad. I've done so many things that are so bad that really, how could God ever love? God loved you so much that he sent his own son to die for you. How much more love do you need? What other demonstration of love is there? As a result, you get to come boldly before his throne of grace. And you, could, you may think your sin is so bad, but just look around the room. All of our sin is so bad. I mean, there's not a person in this room who can't or shouldn't honestly say our sin is horrible. The other night, as I said, Jared and Adam were... Um, I'm, I'm thankful they went to this concert because so many illustrations came from it. Um, they, they went out to dinner after the concert, and I, I don't want to give this restaurant away. It's really kind of a small place. Uh, looks more like a house, and they specialize in waffles. And, um, and at this place, um, they, they found this funny that you, there was an application for employment. This is the whole application for employment at this place. That's the length of the application for employment at this particular place. And we're laughing because the heart of the questions are these. Here are the heart of the questions. I can't see it. I don't know if you can. Do you have reliable transportation? Meaning, can you get to work? Yes or no? Your date available to start? Have you worked with us before? Where? And then finally, list all criminal convictions. Not... Do you have any criminal convictions? <laughs> list any criminal convictions. Right from the start, there's everything. List all criminal convictions. Come on in. <laughs> so next time we go to this house that specializes in waffles. You know what? That is really the truth of us, though. I mean, there's no like, Hey, have you sinned? I just list them. <laughs> list all. You got a list. My list may be longer than yours. But you know what? If we have one thing on that list, it disqualifies us from coming into God's presence without the blood of Jesus Christ. But because of God's great love for us, we can come in. And God, God gives us this this thing where we have the grace and mercy of the Lord in our past. Mercy for our past failures and grace to meet our present and future needs. You may be thinking, you know, I've got some pretty major sins that I've committed. Surely, 
everything's out the window. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament that I think pictures this grace and mercy at full work. David, remember David? David becomes king after a period where uh, he was fleeing from Saul. Eventually Saul was killed. David, who had been anointed king some 7 to 14 years earlier and been running and hiding, finally becomes king. His number one thing that he wants to do when he becomes king is what? He wants to build a temple. He wants to take God and the worship of God out of a tent and put it in a glorious building before God. But God says to him, because you're a warrior, you can't build the temple. But your son will build the temple. David is greatly, I mean, it grieves him that this this happens. As his kingship goes along, David um, commits some horrible sins. Has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, has a son. As a result of that, first son dies, but then another son has Bathsheba's husband murdered. I mean, he, he does some pretty horrific, really, things that we would say automatically disqualify anyone from doing anything. A little later, he, he comes to a point where I, we, it's really hard to say what the deal is, but he becomes a little bored and says, I'm going to count how many people, how many people there are. Count the number of soldiers, count the people, I want to know. And Joab, who's his general, and by the way, Joab is not um, a merciful, kind of gracious guy. If you really, really read the story of Joab, he's not the kind of guy to say, whoa, 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 don't do this. But Joab comes to him and says, David, don't, don't do this. Don't count the people. Now, we, we count people all the time. We're a counting bunch of fools. We love to count everything. But the king was to rely on God. He was not to rely on his numbers. You with me? So by David saying, I'm going to count how many people, he's basically saying, you know, God, great. I just want to see what my strength is. He he does this census, and God is angered against him and says, okay, I'm going to give you you some choices for your punishment for having done this. Here's the three choices he, he, he gave David. He offered David a choice of punishment for his sins by three years of famine on the land, three months of fleeing from his enemies, and in door number three was three days of pestilence on the land. Three choices. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing before his enemies, three days of pestilence, disease coming on the land. David, because he loved the people so much, he said, anything but door number two. Anything except the one that involves me fleeing, God, I'll let you choose. So God says, okay, three days of pestilence on the land. This disease comes on the land. 70,000 people die in less than three days. Suddenly, David's heart. Now, David, when he's con- before he's confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba, he didn't. it takes a hammer to hit him over the head. For him to confess his sin. But after 70,000 people die, he cries out to God in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 17, and says this, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. When, what have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. 
David finally turns and says, God, this was my sin, not their sin. There's so much stuff, I think, spiritual truth in this story. But God stays his hand. In other words, he stops the pestilence, and it, it stops at the home of a guy named Aronel. Aronel lives right outside of what was then the walled city of Jerusalem. And David says, I want to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving for God for him stopping his hand here. So he goes to Aaron out and says, I want to offer God a sacrifice. And Aaron out says, hey, great, just take my place, take my threshing floor and build your sacrifice. And David says, nope, I'm going to buy it because I'm not going to offer God a sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. David buys and he He says, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for staying your hand, even though I sinned. Here's the great part of this story. The great part of this story is David's sin is immense. God's mercy is unbelievable. But his grace, his grace is incredible. The threshing floor of Aaronau becomes the site where Solomon builds the temple. David doesn't even know. In his sin, everything has happened, and now this becomes the place where the temple is going to be built, that his son, the temple he wanted to build but couldn't because of his sin, his warrior attitude, his adultery, his counting the people. I mean, you may think you've done some bad stuff, but count the costs of some of the things David did. And yet, he's still called a man after God's own heart. I want to say to you, this is the mercy and grace of God. Things that you think were, and you did sin, by the way. Don't excuse it. Don't don't say, I didn't. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to God. Confess your sin, but understand that his grace is greater than your sin. It can... Incredible things can happen. Therefore, you, you can come boldly before God's throne of grace and ask for your help in time of need. Are you drawing near to God? Are you shying away? Confess your sin. Rejoice in the grace and the mercy of God. Third, final point is this, the confidence to draw near in relationship. This really is all about relationship, isn't it? God wants a relationship with us. He wants to be our father. He wants us to be able to come boldly in his presence. We need to draw near in relationship. Chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The point, we connect with God and Jesus through relationship. In turn, do you know what you've become? We, when we connect with God through relationship, we become a kingdom of priests. It says in 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter, but you are not like that talking about bad things. For you are a chosen people. You're a kingdom of priests. 
God's holy nation, his very own possession. This is so that you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Here's, here's the turn of this. We, because of Christ, our high priest, we get to come boldly into God's presence, but that's not where we stay. While we're here, we are a kingdom of priests who are both on the earth and in his presence at the same time. It's a remarkable mystery that we're in God's presence, even though we're sitting here in these lovely green chairs. We're in God's presence. We're before the throne of grace. But when we leave this beautiful room, we get to go out and represent him to the world as a kingdom of prophetic priests who, who intercede between God and man and represent him to the world. So what should we do? Well, <clears throat> we should connect personally. We connect personally with him and we connect personally with others. The truth is many of us don't like to connect. We don't want to connect. I dare say there are many of us in this room today who couldn't even name your neighbor's name. Why? Because we, we don't want to connect. You may know the person on either side of you, but let's go two houses down. How about them? You know them? How about the guy across the street? You know them? Why? Because we love the bubble. We love to live in our little bubble. Don't bother me. Just let me live in my bubble. Listen, I'm as guilty about this as anyone. I love my garage door. Flips open, I drive in, it flips down, boom, I'm in my bubble. It's like the stinking bat cave, you know? It's just like, boom. Don't bother me. What kind of priesthood is that? We have been called out of darkness into light. And our call is to connect personally with people so that we can help others come out of darkness into light. This is, goes beyond, by the way, just knowing their name. Because it leads to the second point, connect emotionally. What kind of high priest was Jesus? He was one who could do what? Sympathize with us. To, to sympathize is this... Uh, if two strings vibrate together in sympathy with one another, they're in a relationship that is connected emotionally. We're emotionally connected with Christ. We need to connect emotionally with others. By the way, connecting emotionally with others is not them pouring out their heart to you and saying, wow, I can't believe you did that. You are really bad. Or even, I'll pray for you when we don't mean it. The problem with emotional connection is that it is costly, is it not? What did it cost Jesus to sympathize with us? A lot. He had to leave heaven. He had to come to this earth. He had to come as a man. He had to be and walk as one of us. Overcoming temptation. But listen, if we're going to be what God has called us to be as a church and as individuals, we've got to connect with people personally. We've got to connect with people emotionally. The reason we're doing Alpha on Sunday nights is we're inviting people to come hear about Christianity, to hear about Christ. Why? 
so that we pray that they will see Christ as their great high priest, that they'll receive the forgiveness of their sins, so that we're not trying to build a big church. We don't care how many people come to this place, but what we care about is advancing the kingdom of God. What we care about is seeing people be fully mature followers of Jesus Christ. But many of us, if we got gut level honest, we would have to say, I am not emotionally connected to those who don't know Christ. Many of us, if we're going to get really honest, would say, I'm not even emotionally connected to the people in this room. The people I come to church with every Sunday. I'm not even sure I'm emotionally connected with my small group. I don't mean to be preaching to myself as much as you. But think of this. I'm just blasting us all. Picture two bodies of water. There's this one body of water where the water keeps flowing in, but it never flows out. There's no outlet to this lake, this body of water. There's some unique places on the earth where that can be exemplified. And whatever is in that place is dead. Things don't grow. It becomes stagnant. It becomes lifeless. Picture another body of water. Water flows in, but water flows out. It's a life, a place teeming with life. I don't know about you. I don't want to be in the Dead Sea. I want to be in the life-giving river, water of God. I want to be a part of a church that's life-giving. How does that happen? Well, People, at some point, we have to connect. We have to connect personally. We have to connect emotionally. We have to connect spiritually with people. We are a kingdom of priests. God's holy nation. His very own possession. I mean, what we have to offer to people is not just a personal, emotional connection. Ultimately, what we have to offer is Jesus Christ and him glorified. You are his ambassadors. You are his representatives. You are a kingdom of priests. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, because everything that has happened, because he is fully God, fully man, because he's at the right hand of God the Father, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near in faith. Let us draw near in prayer. Let us draw near to him in relationship and then in relationship, relationship to others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for all that you're doing and all that you've done in our lives. God, we confess today that it is so easy because of our sin to, to, to draw away in shame from you. Lord, I pray that the lies of the enemy that would come against people and try to accuse them and say, you are worthless, you're no good, God doesn't like you, he doesn't love you, you're just too bad. That we would say, yeah, yeah, I am too bad, but praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. I have a great high priest who stands before the creator of the universe, is the creator of the universe, but was 
is just like me, fully God, fully man, can sympathize with me, intervenes for me. Therefore, I get to boldly come into God's presence. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace that is here for me today. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as the one who leads their life and forgives their sin, that they would come to Jesus today and receive this one who loves them. Lord, I, I want to pray specifically for those who are here today and in, in their minds or their thoughts or in their lives have committed sins that are so bad that they think they are disqualified. I pray today would be a day of freedom. Today would be a day of life. That God's grace is greater than our sin. His mercy, they're new every morning. And that we would receive and walk in that mercy and grace and life. Touch our hearts and our lives today, Lord. Stand up with me, if you would. I'm going to ask our ministry teams, all of our ministry teams, to move to the front. And if you're here today and you need prayer before you leave, maybe you need prayer for healing, maybe you need prayer for direction, uh, maybe you need prayer for freedom, or maybe something I've said this morning has just spurred your heart you just know you need the mercy and grace of God afresh and anew today to move forward in life for whatever reason whatever it might be just come and receive prayer while we have a time of ministry for this these moments ahead Kevin is going to lead us let's just worship the Lord and bask in his presence you need prayer